Hello everybody, I hope you're having a great day. My name is Antje Reuscher and I'm the Senior Innovation and Partnerships Manager at Provich Incubator. What you're listening to is the first episode of our brand new Meet the Food Innovators podcast. This podcast is all about food startups and industry pundits in the plant-based and cellular agriculture space. And for each episode, we invite different guests to join us and we'll chat about their entrepreneurial journeys, their products, their research, the challenges they have faced and much, much more. For our very first episode, my colleague and head of Provich Incubator, Albrecht Wolfmeier, spoke with Christopher Kong, co-founder of food startup Better Nature. Better Nature develops meat alternatives from Tempe and is also a Provich Incubator alumnus. Chris is super fun to talk to and he has so much to say about what he and his startup are working on and why you should pay attention. I think you're going to enjoy listening to him. I certainly did. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, I think there's not much more for me to say other than let's jump into the first episode of Meet the Food Innovators. Welcome everyone to Meet the Food Innovators. This is a fireside chat series by Provage Incubator. Thank you so much for joining. Our guest today is Christopher Kong, co-founder and head of business development at Better Nature. Better Nature creates plant-based tempeh products and has become the UK's leading all-natural brand of meat alternatives and one of the most exciting food tech startups in the field of fermentation. So welcome, Chris. Great to have you. Yeah, likewise. No, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Really excited to talk to you again. I remember when we met for the first time here in Berlin at the Provage Incubator in 2019, so not even that long ago, but it seems like a long, long time. Tempe was on your mind. Your startup journey was just about to begin um, under a different name at the time. And you had all kinds of problems um, as well, of <laughs> course, <laughs> challenges as we, if we call them. So as, an, as a kind of... Um, task here if you had to wrap up your journey as a startup entrepreneur since then with better nature in 30 seconds how would that sound like 30 seconds okay um the most amazing highs uh but certainly some lows as well met amazing people along the way uh including yourself Abrex. um had a lot of fun it's still a challenge you know every day is still new every day there's you know something wrong happens uh but You know, I go to bed every night feeling fulfilled and yeah, that's what keeps me moving forward. Awesome. Thank you. So maybe a little bit on yourself to get started. You graduated from University of Oxford in molecular and biochemistry. So the sky was probably open for a scientific or industry based um, industry oriented career like the chemical industry or gas industry or I don't know financial industry maybe. Yet you started a plant based startup. So what happened? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a good question. You know, how did I go from you know, biochemistry into into tempeh? Well, I guess The reason why I decided to study biochemistry in the first place is because I was obsessed about having impact, um, having a positive impact on the planet. You know, I quite early on, uh, when I was about 16, I came to a realization that the world was riddled with so many problems. And if I were to sort of go down the well-charted route of, I don't know, going into banking or accounting or law or consulting, then I wouldn't necessarily be, you know, in the best position 
to be applying, you know, the, the, you know, all the amazing, I guess, what's the word? Privilege, right? All the amazing privilege that I've been so lucky to have had in my lifetime, um, to solve some of these most, you know, some of these incredibly pressing issues. And we're all incredibly privileged. The fact that we're all here, you know, in front of our laptops, in safe environments, speaking to each other this afternoon means that we are inherently privileged. You know, we all, uh, well educated, uh, we're all, we've all got the necessary tools to be able to, you know, apply ourselves and solve some of these problems. And I thought, you know, going down that well-charted route of, I don't know, the financial industry, for example, was just a really big waste of this privilege. So I thought, okay, you know, what other things am I interested in? What other fields could I apply myself in? And biochemistry really stood out to me. Um, I was good at biology and chemistry at, you know, at, sorry, at school. Um, really interested about science. You know, I've always been, um, you know, fascinated about science since I was really, really young. And I was just, yeah, in absolute awe of Sir Alexander Fleming. You know, I basically thought if I could be one of a team of a thousand people that develops the next blockbuster drug or the next, I don't know, yeah, antibiotic, right? That's able to kill all antibiotic resistant bacteria then I could be personally responsible for saving a million lives if this blockbuster drug, whatever it is, goes on to save a, a billion because I'm part of the team of one of 1,000. So that sort of, that, that planted a seed in my mind. And that's why I started, um, you know, decided to go and study biochemistry because I wanted to be that team. I wanted to be one of the 1,000 people that go on to create this next big drug. But when I started university, what I, what, you know, it, I very quickly realized that the life of an academic or the life in research just wasn't for me. Uh, not to say that it's not exciting or not interesting. It just requires a very specific type of person to go into the lab day in, day out and to be faced with failures, you know, more often than not and to really grind away at solving this really, really specific scientific problem. I just didn't have it in me to be that research scientist. So it sort of dawned on me, okay, what can I do now? You know, I've got, I'm still really interested in the sciences. This is, you know, I still want to be part of the solution, but I don't want to be a research scientist. What can I do? And that's when I started to look to business. You know, I started becoming, I started reading a lot into what it takes to start a business, started getting really interested in entrepreneurship. Um, I, you know, started applying for all sorts of different consultancy firms because I thought, that was a good starting place to get some business grounding to be able to start my own business one day in the future. And I actually, yeah, I actually did a summer internship at, you know, one of the world's leading, um, consulting firms and got a full time offer to join them after I graduated from university. But my final year of university. So like, I mean, life is full of all these serendipitous events that lead us to where we are today. And we have no control or we're very limited control over these serendipitous events. And in the end, you know, my final year of university, um, I just so happened to apply for this biotech conference at the University of Cambridge called the Gap Summit. And my one of our now co-founders, Amadeus, just so happened to apply as well. I was based in the UK. He was based in the US. He was doing his PhD on tempeh fermentation um, at UMass Amherst. And I was, you know, in the UK doing my master's in biochemistry. 
if it weren't for this conference, we would never have crossed paths, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but this conference brought us together. He, I, at that time, I was a transitioning uh, vegan. And he told me all about tempeh, which I'd never heard anything about. But he told me, I think, most importantly, the science and the vision that he had for tempeh, or tempeh fermentation in particular. And that just blew my mind. And that ticked all the boxes. It's for me, you know, it ticked the, the scientific box. You know, I wanted to start a business that was grounded in science because that's where I felt I could add the most value. Uh, with my background in biochemistry, I wanted, you know, to be part of, you know, I was at that time, I was already sold on plant based and the future of alternative proteins. And this was a, an amazing opportunity for me to get involved in a very novel, very young, space you know tempeh is still very poorly understood and very uh poorly appreciated so i thought you know there, there's an opportunity there and him you know he himself amadeus was just a fantastic human being to be around and we got on so well despite you know just speaking like this virtually for for a few months you know for months and months before the actual conference so yeah um that was in the summer of or no, sorry, springtime of 2018. And that's what brought me here today, <laughs> I guess. Great. So, yeah, you mentioned, of course, the the technology or the, 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 the source of it all, that's fermentation and tempeh. Can you explain a little bit what the magic is all about? Fermentation is all the rage now in the in the alternative protein space because it's it's an it's an established technology that can come in many different ways and you are using it now as a food tech startup but it has its origins like hundreds of years ago um, um, and also the, that's what, what's, what's the case for tempeh so can you explain these two things why tempeh why fermentation yeah absolutely I think I'll start with why fermentation and then move on to why tempeh um, so fermentation is yeah, as you mentioned absolutely fascinating it's about fundamentally It's about leveraging bio, uh, biological solutions for modern day problems. You know, that's, I think, the fundamental uh, principle of fermentation. So the use, the use of what nature has given us to help solve our own problems, right? And fermentation goes all the way back millennia, you know, from, from the dawn of man, uh, when we were using it to ferment bread or probably more fun, wine and beer. And, you know, or, or pres as, as a method of preservation, right? So think of kimchi, um, think of drying fish, right? In, in, in the Nordic, in Nordic countries. These are all, you know, different use cases of fermentation. Obviously, the use cases of fermentation today are way more varied. Everything from the production of chemicals, right? All through to the production of, um, food. So it's, yeah, it, it's, it's about using what nature has given us, what, you know, 4.2 billion years of evolution has given us to solve our own problems. Um, and that's really, really powerful. And because, yeah, you know, nature is awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, but why tempeh fermentation? So I guess, yeah, for those that don't know, tempeh fermentation is an ancient fermentation technology that originated in Indonesia 300 years ago. So Amadeus, he himself is Indonesian. You know, he grew up there. He comes from a family of food scientists from Indonesia, and they're all obsessed with tempeh. 
And I think the best way to think about tempeh is to think of it as a marriage between mushroom protein and plant protein. So for the sake of argument, tempeh is typically made using soybeans. So I'm just going to focus on soybeans. But you can make tempeh out of really any bean, nut, legume, grain, or seed. So any plant-based source of carbohydrate can serve as the fuel for the fermentation. And essentially, you get your, let's say, again, for the sake of argument, soybeans. You get your soybeans and you inoculate them with fungal spores. Sounds nasty, but right, (laughs) fungal spores is mushroom spores, basically, right? And what happens during the fermentation process is that these mushroom spores germinate and they grow and they wrap, they create this mycelium network, a network of these thin filaments that grows around your soybeans and wraps them up together in a matrix that is made of pure protein. So you start off, you know, and and typically this process takes anywhere between, um, you know, 36 to 48 hours. So it's it's rather quick. Um, we've obviously, you know, um, not obviously, but we developed ways to make it faster. Um, but yeah, what you start off with is a bag of wet soybeans. <laughs> and what you end up with is basically this white cake that is incredibly nutrient rich, that has this lovely meaty texture that can absorb loads of flavor. And to think about that and to think about that happening within one and a half to two days is miraculous. But on top of that, not only does the tempeh fermentation process give it that meaty texture, it also massively increases the protein content of your substrate. Um, essentially what happens is that the, the, the tempeh or, or the, the mushroom feeds off the fats and carbohydrates of the plant-based substrate that you feed it, and it itself synthesizes protein. So to put into numbers, the end you know, tempeh has 25% or the fermentation, sorry, the fermentation process increases the protein content of the plant-based substrate by roughly 25% and decreases the fat content and the carbohydrate content by 40% respectively. Um, the mycelium network is it contains all nine essential amino acids, meaning your end product is a complete source of protein. And because you're using the full bean, right, you're not, say, you know, extracting just the protein from it because you have, you're using the full bean during the fermentation process. Your end product is also super high in fiber and all the micronutrients, all the calcium, the iron, the manganese, the vitamins that are typically locked away in the fibrous matrix of the bean are released and become, and become far more bioavailable, bioavailable as a result of the fermentation. Because in a way, the fermentation is a way of this, it's literally just this fungi eating away at the plant-based structure you feed it and growing. So yeah, that, that's tempeh fermentation in a nutshell. <laughs> there's, there's obviously a lot more to it, but yeah. Yeah, of course we can't go into all the details here, but um, com- compared to the old um, traditional technology and what you've made it now, what you've put it into it, you said you, you made it much faster, for example, but of course you optimized this in many ways. Um, if you can elaborate a little bit on what makes you then the f- a, a leading tech startup that has filed a couple of patents on this or around this um, compared to the um, traditional fermentation. What is it about the tech? Yeah, absolutely. So today we filed about five patents. 
And um, we're looking to file a couple more actually over the next couple of months. So it's, it's, it's quite an exciting time. Um, but essentially, our patterns are around two things. So our patterns are around how we modulate the fermentation process to select for characteristics that we're looking for in the end product. And our, you know, we have another set of patterns that protects the actual end product, right? Um, or, or the processing of that tempeh into end products. So, uh, you know, for example, if we think about sort of more upstream in the actual fermentation process, we've got patterns around, you know, we've got, for example, one pattern that allows us to accelerate or you know, it's a development that we made that accelerates the fermentation speed of the tempeh fermentation process from what typically takes 36 to 48 hours down to less than 18. And obviously this is really important from an operational perspective. But beyond that, we also have patterns that help us produce tempeh that's far more nutritious and far more delicious than say conventional products to the extent that, you know, I see a, a future in which we don't necessarily need to be, say, a tempeh brand, but we are just an all-natural meat alternatives brand. We are a meat alternatives brand that is clean label, and that's certainly the direction that we're moving in. Um, so to double-click on that, it's, for example, increasing the vitamin B12 content of our, our, our uh, tempeh. It's increasing the vitamin D content Sorry, of our tempeh. It's um, making it far more meatier by increasing the density of the mycelium network of our tempeh. It's about, um, we've also got another development um, about increasing the umami content, right? So the savory flavor naturally of our end product. So that's sort of one basket of IP. The other basket of IP that we've developed is the actual processing of that raw ingredient, right? The raw tempeh into downstream products that are, you know, really, really interesting. So, for example, we filed a patent that allows us to create um, what we call the becherine, which is effectively a plant-based ingredient made using our proprietary fermentation process that can be used to make all sorts of products, whether it's plant-based dairy um, or even a, a meat and or a protein and flavor enhancer in alt protein. Um, we've also got filed a patent for what we call the better matrix, which is effectively this um, by by again selecting for the right starter cultures, right? That actually drives. So that's the most important thing is that that the starter culture is what drives the fermentation process. By selecting for the best or the most optimum starter cultures, as well as also the inputs. So what we actually feed the starter culture, we've been able to create um, meat alternatives that look and cook just like meat. That look. So different from tempeh, it's almost a shame that, you know, if it has to be called tempeh. Um, and yeah, that, that is able to exhibit the same, for example, uh, fibrous, you know, texture of that of, say, you know, a chicken or fish or, or, or pork or, or, or beef. So that's something we're working on as well. Cool. Great. Thank you. So, but for starting this and launching this, you developed snack products convenient products to you know to easy to prepare easily and fast um for nowadays <laughs> consumers i would say so that was just this is just the first leg of your journey i understand now because you're going to become a much more um technology-based company in the end when it comes to your 
business model as well? Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, from the get-go, we were a technology business. So the very first patent that we filed was actually in late 2018. And it it wasn't even, I mean, it is food tech, but it was a hardware patent. And and I I don't want to go into too much detail, but, you know, I I didn't, I never set out to create a a food brand alone, you know. Uh, My intention and and the intention that the co-founders and I shared um, was to create a food tech startup. Um, but we realized that in order to, you know, no one knew what Tempeh was. Ergo, the value of our IP was non-existent. You know, you could be the world's leading Tempeh fermentation startup, but if no one knows what Tempeh is or no one appreciates Tempeh fermentation, then what's the value of, you know, what are you actually bringing to market? So we basically realized that creating a brand was inherent, you know, what had to be part of our strategy because, and, and not only does that allow us to build the awareness of Tempeh in, in the way that we want to build it, um, but also builds defensibility to the brand. You know, you can look at, for example, Beyond or Impossible. There are obviously, you know, great brands in their own right, but they're grounded um, or they're, they're, they're made defensible, not just by their uh, brand, but also their IP. So for us, you know, it was, it was a, you know, we, we found that building a brand was not only a way for us to educate the market about what Tempeh is, but to also build greater defensibility, defensibility into our business model. Um, and yeah, the snacks that we were working on at the ProMerge Incubator you know, in early 2019, we never actually launched those because we realized it's, you know, though snacks and, 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 and sort of confectionery are the fastest rotating products in, on shelves, and the reason why we went for snacks is because, you know, if, if the motive was to educate the market, then how better to educate the market than a product that sells very, very quickly, rotates very, very quickly, can be eaten at any time, at anywhere, right? Um, and that's why we went for snacks in the first place. But sort of looking back at the mission that we were after, you know, the world doesn't need another plant-based snack brand. What the world needs is for people to eat less meat you know, for, for, for all the reasons that, that we know. So when we sort of thought back at that mission again more closely, we sort of decided we decided to pivot away from the snacks. And yeah, I mean the first year of Bed Nature can it's just a lot of pivoting. There's a lot of adapting, there's a lot of that, a lot of soul searching um as well. But the the brand as it is now and the products the product range that you have established um, with all these um, very, I would say, brand-oriented products as well. Um, that's that's what you what you are building it on now. On it's called tantalizing taco or what's that uh, saucy steer fry, and you have all kinds of bundles. So how would you describe your your brand strategy? And then we can talk also about uh, direct to consumer, which was the the base and the starting point of your of your um, commercial journey. Yeah. Um... I think the brand strategy can really be aptly summarized by, I guess, our mission, right? That's also our tagline. It's about making protein without compromise. And what we mean by that is protein that doesn't compromise on people, the planet, and animals. And if we were to look even deeper, what do we mean by not compromising on people? We mean creating delicious plant-based meat alternatives that can suit any occasion um, that are very intuitive to work with 
and that can be consumed as a staple, right? That are genuinely great for you that you can eat every single day. So it doesn't compromise on um, you know, your taste of the product. It doesn't compromise on the way you can use the product. It doesn't compromise on uh, the nutrition that you're looking for from your food, right? And obviously without compromise, compromising on the environment, what we mean by that is not only, you know, I think inherently plant-based meat alternatives are better for the environment relative to say beef, right? But we, it, we can always do more work on that front. You know, the, the, um, the world needs everyone to really pull their own weight and needs some to pull even greater weight than their own. So we're, you know, we're the UK's first meat-free brand to go completely carbon and plastic negative, for example. And that was a recent development that we're really, really excited about. And without compromising on animals, that's relatively straightforward. So that is the brand strategy. It's to make protein without compromise. And if we were to think about this as the overarching strategy, then the actual, how it impacts, you know, product development and route to market or, you know, what other ranges we can launch, you know, it doesn't necessarily stop us from, say, moving into alternative dairy if we wish to do so, because alt dairy, um, you know, is still protein, right? And I think something ridiculous, like it, it, it composes maybe a third or a quarter of all protein uh, consumed in Europe, um, you know, cheeses and that and the like. So we want to, it, it doesn't stop us from, say, moving into those spaces. Yeah, I mean, again, from the get-go, for us, direct consumer was something that we took very, very seriously. And I think for some brands, it's like a second thought. You know, it's all about trying to get into retail and then trying to go online. For us, you know, though meat alternatives, and bear in mind, this is all pre-COVID, right? So uh, when we first started D2C, um, though meat alternatives aren't necessarily a category that consumers are looking to buy online, you know, especially when they're chilled, especially if they, yeah, have, you know, short shelf lives, etc., etc. It's not necessarily a product that sells very well online. We wanted to create an online store because we wanted to get as much feedback from the start as possible. Um, yeah, like we don't, honestly speaking, 95% of the time, we have no idea what we're doing, right? And I think that's true for any business. <laughs> uh, any business from... Google to Facebook, all to your, you know, down, you know, to, to your, to your very early startups, you have no idea what you're doing, right? And, but the best way you can understand what's best to do, right? Given, um, a thousand different things that one could do is to just speak to people and get their feedback. Um, cause ultimately your consumers are what's going to be, are other people that are going to be building your business for you. Uh, if you treat them really well, they'll become your greatest advocates. If you treat them badly, then they'll destroy your business, right? Um, so 
for us, creating that direct-to-consumer channel was a really effective way to be able to engage with our consumers in a one-to-one manner, in a way that, you know, if you were just purely listed on retail shelves, you'd very, it'd be incredibly difficult to get to, to, to sort of engage with consumers in that way. Um, and so that's why direct-to-consumer is really at the heart of it, because, you know, we knew that bed nature in early 2020 was not going to be bed nature in early 2022. You know, we, we still had a lot to learn. We still had a lot of mistakes to make. And we just wanted to make those mistakes as fast as possible so we can, you know, improve our product as fast as possible. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really the main motivation behind direct, setting up direct consumer in the very beginning. It's all about getting customer feedback. It's all about engaging your customers in a one-to-one way. Um, but it's also a brand building exercise. It's about creating a community which I think leads very nicely to maybe our, you know, when we start talking about um, crowdfunding. But having this direct-to-consumer sort of store allows us to, yeah, again, you know, cultivate our our group of, you know, most, uh, our group of most fervent uh, customers. It allows us to treat them nice. It allows us to treat them nicely. It allows us to reach out to them or give them calls or send them a nice gift, you know, after a, a, you know, a certain number of orders. It allows us to offer them discounts, allows us to, yeah, just treat them well because your first thousand customers of any business are your most important. And as we know, an R factor, right, greater than one leads to everyone <laughs> getting it. So if of those, if from those first thousand customers, your referral rate R factor is greater than one, then before long, you'll be taking over the world. So, um, yeah, but obviously with COVID, direct consumer didn't just become this feedback channel. It became our main channel <laughs> of actually generating top line revenue. So, um, yeah, uh, but, but in any case, COVID or not, we would have set up, we would have set up direct consumer. And you're also combining it with all kinds of yeah, rewards, as you mentioned, you're gamifying the, the shopping experience or rather the better nature experience if i may say uh, across channels which is quite quite interesting can you say anything about that that element of yeah bringing people even closer and having them yeah be more um of a friend than just a um, a customer yeah so i mean i guess we do this in three ways right so and then it's like three different channels of customer acquisition or um yeah i guess i guess three different you, know, you think about your funnel of how customers come in to your brand i guess this this gamification element that you're talking about refers to three primary channels it refers to our newsletter right so email marketing it refers to our social media presence and it refers to our website um i'd say that three these three are currently the three most successful channels for us and on our website we, I wouldn't say necessarily say gamify it, but we build customer loyalty and customer trust by having a chat function. So if anyone wants to come in touch with us and ask questions about our products, they can, right? But we also have a loyalty program. So if customers were to buy, say, you know, if they were, if customers were to buy from us, they get points. And once they reach a certain amount of points, they can start claiming discounts or free products. Um, and, but, yeah, so that, that that's one element. 
and there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, you know, in terms of referrals and etc. But that's that's how we sort of build customer loyalty and and customer satisfaction on our shop uh, on our um, newsletter. I think it's you know relatively straightforward. Well, we what we try to do is not hard sell all the time because <laughs> people don't want to open up their emails in the morning and have an email being like buy me buy me buy me i mean that's not that's not nice people don't like that what they want is to feel like they belong or or, or you know they, they want to get something out of that newsletter so we try to always include as much educational content in there um you know to steer them i guess to be more sustainable or be more environmentally friendly or to be more ethically conscious about their behavior. Um, cause again, that is the brand that we represent. You know, we're all about, you know, living life without compromise as we speak. Um, and all, and it's always all about like self improvement. And yeah, with our social media, it's about, you know, creating engaging content that people want to read. That's not all, again, not all about the hard sell, but about, you know, creating a brand or an identity that people want to be affiliated with. And I think fundamentally all these channels start from having a very strong understanding of who your customer is, you know, who your customer is, not just like, not just the demographic data, but the psychoanalytic data as well. So like, not just um, where they live, how much money they made, what age they are, are they male, are they female, etc. It's also about why, are they, you know, what purchasing behavior do they do and, and, and why do they make those purchasing choices? That's really difficult to find. But, you know, in our space, for example, it's, you know, why are they vegan or, or why are they interested in adopting a plant-based diet? And making sure that your messaging across all of your marketing channels, whether digital or non-digital, meets those psycho- psychoanalytic drivers as well. Um, and And then... All that funnels in to actually the process or the, or the, the experience that the customer goes through in actually purchasing a product. So you obviously want to make that as simple as possible, as clean as possible. And that funnels through the actual experience that the product, uh, uh, that the customer has when they engage with your product, right? So when the product, when the parcel arrives at their door, what is the experience of that? What is the unboxing experience like? What is in that parcel that adds more value beyond just your products? Um, it, you know, is there a nice handwritten note in there? Yes, there is. You know, is there some information about what recipes they could make out of your products? Yes, there are. Um, and making sure that every single touch point, whether it's the, the cards or the packaging feeds through to that wider mission. I mean, for example, if we were to send a product um, that's in styrofoam, right? Instead of recyclable material or recycled material, even, then that completely defeats like the whole exercise of what we've done up until that point. Um, because it completely detracts and it's, it's, it goes completely against our brand's, you know, identity. So it's about making sure that every single touch point from the very top of the funnel to the very end is is coherent great i think lots of good takeaways for other startup founders as well because as you said you're doing a lot of things just by yeah by 
trial and error and and, and see where where it ends that's that's necessarily <laughs> yeah. so and so you've built your d2c presence and you've been very successful also on channels like on platforms like amazon can you say anything about that that is different from the rest and how you've become successful there yeah so amazon is is tricky um so i guess how amazon is different is that amazon itself is that channel so uh and amazon but, but by that channel like they are the top of the funnel you know gone are the days that someone goes onto google searches tempe and then finds you on a, and, and then you know scrolls and then finds you on amazon no people that shop from amazon if they want anything online the first place they go to is amazon so they are the very top of the funnel so um and and they're a huge you know component of the top of the funnel maybe think about um, just what proportion of online sales, not just in the UK, but in places like Germany. And in fact, I think Germany is actually a bigger market for Amazon. It's the biggest market for Amazon outside of the US. Um, just think about like how much of online direct consumer they, 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 they themselves alone sort of capture. It's, it's huge. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so for us, it's about making sure that our products stand out is we're making sure that we invest wisely when it comes to marketing spend on Amazon because Amazon is that top of the funnel. All the activity you can do has to be on Amazon, right? Like if you, you, you can't, uh, like, so that's all about the advertising and making sure that as much as you can, again, communicating the brand's values, uh, and trying to drive conversion rates on, on your listings. So making sure that your page listings on the channel are perfect. But then after that, the actual experience of um, the customer receiving the product ought to be identical, right? Um, and if it is, if it is as good as your other channels, they, you know, they'll buy back from you again and again and again. So, or even, you know, stop looking up, you know, looking, <laughs> looking up, you, uh, like, sorry, looking you up on Instagram or whatever. And then buy, and then finding out that you have your own store and then buying from you there. In which case, then you actually are able to build in that customer loyalty more effectively through all the you know, tools I mentioned earlier. Then you're able to have that one to one connection because, yeah, as great as Amazon is, you get no data on the customer. You don't know their email address. You get your, their name and their, their, their physical address, but that's really about it. So, um, yeah, it's about trying to make that experience so great that that customer actually wants to move away from Amazon and buy from your own store. And how has that been working for you? I mean, you've been successful for quite a while on Amazon and it's I understand now this is much harder to control and to to monitor in a way compared to your own your own website. So how many people can you take from and, and drag from Amazon then to your web shop? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge challenge. So, you know, Amazon is still one of our single biggest channels. Um, it's, it's actually bigger than our own direct to consumer channel. Um, and what that tells us there is that we're not there yet. You know, if our experience was better than Amazon's, then why would a customer buy from Amazon when they can buy from us? So like, yeah, it just, what that shows us is that we've got a lot of room to improve. And, and we're working on it. It's about making the customer experience even more seamless. But, you know, but, but what I can say is that 
when it comes to rec- returning customer rates, those that buy from our own website come back much more often. So we've got returning customer rates of you know anywhere between 55 to 65% on any given month, which is you know quite high, um, relatively speaking. But on Amazon, it's slightly different. Amazon, I think, is about a quarter, right? So I guess what that shows is that maybe downstream, or, or if you look at the middle of the funnel and the end of the funnel in terms of driving, driving free purchase, driving loyalty, we're good at that. But what it shows that on top of the funnel and actually getting customers in in the first place, Amazon does a much better job than what we currently do. So a lot of my, you know, when it comes to direct consumer, a lot of my time, a lot of my, 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 you know, a lot, a lot of what I think about is like, how the heck do I steal these customers away from Amazon and get them into Bed and Nature, get them to our website, get them to buy from us and lock in, lock them in, right? Um, because the experience is so great. All right. So in terms of overall mar- go-to-market strategy, how does the D2C and uh, so those um, platforms, those marketplaces fit in? Because there's only so much you can do online and um, in, in, in times of a pandemic, that's definitely the, the way to go. And in the first um, phase of a startup, you need to get to build that community, get feedback. And that's what you've been doing very successfully now. But you're also active in food service and also present in more and more um Uh, retail chains and retailers so how's your overall go-to-market strategy set up now yeah i mean to say like yeah to be completely frank to say that there's a clear go-to-market strategy is would be a lie you know i told you that this was all planned out from day one i'd be lying i think as an early stage startup you just need to be frank with yourself and understand that you know you just need to seize opportunity like you see an opportunity go for it and don't necessarily think too hard about oh how does this impact strategy because the strategy is to grow revenue that is the fundamental strategy right is to create is to give your give your business enough fuel to continue growing right and that means um yeah meeting your customers where they are so yeah i i guess for us dark consumer will always be something that's super important because even if customers don't buy from our web store, if they come to our website, that's a win. <laughs> you know, if they come to our website, they know who we are. They see what we're up to. And if they were to then go into their local, I don't know, Tesco's or Sainsbury's when we're one day listed with them and they see us, then great. Then maybe they'll be more inclined to pick us up off the shelves versus the plethora of other products that are currently available on these retail shelves. So I think direct consumer or, or, or digital marketing is super important, regardless of what your actual go-to-market strategy is, right? Um, but, you know, in terms of what we're thinking, you know, in the end, you know, we still believe that customers will ultimately want to purchase their chilled, meat-free products from retailers, as opposed to purely just from us on our online store, um, unless they truly love us, <laughs> um, right? And unless they really, really love our brand and our offering, they'll probably prefer, and, and this, you know, this is maybe 90%, 95% of the population will prefer to just go to a store, pick a, pick one of our products up, as opposed to say a basket of 27, you know, 27 pounds worth of our product. So they'd much rather do that. And so really for us, I think the good market strategy is 
using direct consumer now and you know obviously in the past and in the future to build brand awareness really cultivate that community treat them really really well right um but ultimately drive volume right um through through retail and food service but that said i mean i think it would be a dream if 100% of our revenues come from the consumer and that would be the ideal honestly um but frankly it's not you know yeah we 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 sell chilled meat free products and i don't think that's that's what it's going to be like in the future but if i can create a pure play direct consumer brand i would yeah interesting now speaking of the community that you've built let's move on to the to the crowd that you've used also that you've um, engaged for your crowdfunding and you've just um, very successfully raised a big round your your first big round um, on um, with crowdfunding on cedars with one leading uh, vc backing you and, and and chipping in their money but you've raised it like in a really short time i think you've um, exceeded your own expectations i would i would guess from what i've seen so what was the reasoning behind this and how are you handling this now yeah i mean i, I guess it's really about fundamentally we saw crowdfunding not necessarily as a way to raise investment but a, ra but a way to award our community um, a way to get our community involved in the long-term success right of the business and a way to try and get more people into our community you know um so because because you know frankly like yeah we, we could have raised probably all the money we raised on cedars from from other from other sources through you know typical um vcs or angels or, or what have you friends family like we could have raised the rest around there in fact you know of the of the round that we raised We raised 80% through um, our, our private channels, right? So 80% of the, of the funds that we raised came directly to us and only 20% through Cedars. And then like crowdfunding is a lot of work. I think if people are looking at crowdfunding thinking that, oh yeah, it's really easy money. People are just going to throw money at us. I mean, depending on where you are, maybe that's the case, right? Depending on what your brand is, maybe that's the case. But it's a lot of work to actually prepare, you know, if you want it to be a success, right? If you, and depending on how much you want to raise, it is a lot of work creating the video, making sure the script is on point, you know, creating the perk structure, getting your community jazzed up about it. It's a huge, huge marketing and business development exercise. And it, it, it honestly, in the month running up to the crowdfunding campaign, I was probably spending more time crowdfunding than I was or preparing for the crowdfunding campaign. That I wasn't anything else in the business. Um, so, so yeah, just a caveat. You know, please be prepared if you're thinking about doing crowdfunding. Um, but yeah, I mean, for us, once we had locked in, I guess the 80%, we wanted to reward and we wanted to build our community. We wanted to, yeah, again, sort of do a lot of really smart marketing to lock in our customers and to acquire new customers to the brand. And uh, crowdfunding allowed us to do that really, really well. And it was, it was a super fun experience. And yeah, the, 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 the rate at which we closed out the round surpassed, yeah, certainly my expectations and everyone else's in the teams. 
Um, and the, the challenges now, you have to, at least that's what it looks like from the website, um, you have to now work with uh, 354 investors in a way, small investors, of course, more and more your community, your friends, mostly. Does this complicate things or is it actually just, does it just look like that? To be honest, it doesn't complicate things at all, right? Because, I mean, what is it? Okay, you've got, you've got um, the legal side of things and you've got the actual operational side of things, right? So legally speaking, there's only one investor and it's Cedars, right? Because Cedars basically manages the interests of all of these investors that invested in us through the platform, right? But operationally speaking, it's like, like, I mean, they're just another customer, right? Um, you know, but, but beyond being a customer, these are people that have dropped, you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand plus pounds into you. So they're in fact probably the best customer you'll ever have. And who doesn't want 350 people investing, you know, two thousand pounds into their business, being the best customers ever, telling their friends and their family about your brand? Um, so again, it, it all comes down to just treating them with respect. And treating them well, because people, I mean, generally speaking, want to be treated well. <laughs> so yeah, just just um, make sure you look after them, you know. But ultimately, your as a founder, your responsibility is not to them; it's to your business, right? Because if your business does well, then they do well, and that's ultimately what they care about, right? But what I mean by treating them well is about making sure that you keep them posted with your updates, making sure that. Um, you give them all the tools to be able for them to then spread the message with their friends and family. Um, so it's really more about transparency and communication than anything else. And this is the transparency and communication we offer to our customers anyway. So it's not like we need to treat these investors any differently, to be honest. So it's a bit like the best of both worlds um, that you have a crowd, like you have your really loyal probably also customers being small investors now in your company and you're still building that community that you have been building for quite a while and giving them feedback, being transparent. Um, so this is then a natural continuation of what you've been doing with the D2C and the storytelling that you've, that you've um, built for better nature. Exactly, exactly. And I think one difference though about investors is that they will not pull back if you fuck up, right? Like if you mess up, they're not going to let it slide because they feel like they've got skin in the game, which is fantastic. You know, this is amazing because it keeps us on our toes. And, you know, again, if, if it, this, the whole point of direct consumer, at least for us, is feedback because we are not, you know, better nature today is not going to be better nature in a year's time. And we are always looking to improve. We're always looking to get better and better involved. And, yeah, I think having that mindset and being open to criticism and feedback is is super super important in your in your most early stages. And I would still consider that bed nature is an early you know, we're still an early stage startup. Like we're not there yet. We're far from it. So yeah, I, you know, at this point we're looking for people to offer us the feedback. Whether we take it or not is our call. But having you know three hundred and fifty people willing, you know, if we ask them to to give us feedback, right? Because they got skin in the game, is is excellent. Yeah, speaking of the stage, even if this is still early stage, so, um, and you've been building this, 
and it's getting bigger but how do you that was one question also from from the audience how 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 are you how are you scaling up how are you expanding this getting into new markets um and there's follow-up questions regarding regulation cultural differences so what's your there's no master plan again i'm sure but there is a plan of course and how does it look like yeah i mean okay like going back to what i said earlier when i said that i don't know what i'm doing 95 percent of the time i hope i know what i'm doing more than 95 percent of the time oh sorry sorry yeah i, I hope i don't yeah whatever you're you getting it I'm, you guys know what i'm trying to say um <laughs> yeah. but Yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of scaling up, we're launching a brand new range of products in two weeks time, two, three weeks time that we're super, super excited about. Um, for, you know, protein without compromise also means creating accessible sources of delicious, nutritious and all natural protein. And so this range, this new range that we're launching comes at a, a significantly lower price point than our current products. But still retains the same quality, um, that we, that, that, you know, that we absolutely, you know, adhere to in all of our products, um, have the exact same credentials, et cetera. So we're super, super excited about that. And I think with that also opens up a lot of new sales opportunity, right? Because, you know, um, your, um, in, in the, in, 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 in Germany, your Ravers and your Edekas probably aren't going to list the exact same products in your own insurers or your, you know, where, where your, your organic food stores, because they just attract a different customer demographic. So for us, I think these new products open us up to a much broader customer demographic set, uh, which is really, really exciting. It means that we could potentially get our products to even more customers. Um, so, but beyond, you know, I guess, expanding our range and making our products more accessible, Another really cool element of direct consumer is that you can very quickly test new markets. Um, cause your limitation in direct consumer is not whether a buyer says yes or no, it's whether the customer says yes or no. Right? So as long as there are people in whatever country that say that they want your product, you can potentially sell to them. Right? I, again, and also, you know, within Germany, within the UK, you know, you're not limited about by the number of stores that the retailer is willing to give you, about the regions of the stores that that buyer is willing to give you, you can ship across the whole country. You know, say, well, you can ship across the whole world if you wanted to, and your product is capable of doing that. So um, I, I think that's really, really exciting. And so so what we've done is that we've actually used direct consumer um, in places like Germany and in France. So we're actually active on Amazon Germany um, to sell our products. Um, and as to, to use that as a test to see if there is interest in our products. And if there is interest in our products in that, you know, in Amazon Germany, Amazon France, then we can lean in. Then we can start to like, okay, this has grown to a large enough size. There are obviously a lot of people that are interested. Oh, we've got their address information. Do we know where our customers are? Okay. For some reason, they're all around Stuttgart. I don't know why, but they're all, no, I'm joking. No, all, but you know, it, like hypothetically speaking, let's say they're all around Stuttgart. Okay, cool. Like maybe we should start pushing on retail in Stuttgart, you know, uh, and, and, and just taking it from there. So again, that's sort of what I mean by we don't necessarily have like a day to day, week to week plan. You just gotta, you know, use that feedback and, and, and yeah, let your customers plan your journey for you. 
So it's also always very data driven and D2C is always first and then you can build your retail um, strategy on, on that. Exactly. And you have good arguments then if you have uh, that data and you can say to a buyer that, that this could be interesting for that uh, region, for example, that you mentioned. 100%. I mean, yeah. right now, for example, we're, we're in discussions with a, with a potential retailer in Germany. And one of the questions, and, and this is like actual, like actually the case, and they're asking us, okay, um, we can't necessarily give you a full national listing or you know, we're on the fence about that. But if you were to start in one region, where do you recommend we start? I can pull out the map and literally say like, these are all the orders that we received from our German customers. <laughs> you make the call. Like it, it's all somehow clustered around the Western and Southwestern parts of Germany. And then and that again, just uh, gives us yeah, informed data. And honestly with, with retail, you want to like, and with any channel, you want to lead with your best foot. So I, I think a limit, uh, like a short, but not a short, sorry, a limited retail launch is a fantastic place to start because it means that if you're given a hundred stores or, or you know, however many stores and 50 to 100 stores, you can give those 50 to 100 stores as much dedication as possible and learn as much from those limited number of stores to be able to then take it across the country, right? Make all your mistakes there because that's where you're most, that's where the buyer's probably most forgiving, right? As opposed to getting a huge national listing and then I don't know, not performing at the rate, you know, uh, the way that it should be because you haven't had a chance to make all those mistakes. And then the buyer being, I'm sorry, like you failed, you're out, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's super tempting to be like, yeah, I want to take all thousand stores, but you just got to be realistic. And you, you know, you are, especially as a new market, uh, with completely different customer set, even a new language, right? Like I don't speak German. Um, you, you will run into problems and you want to make sure that your processes are well set up for it to make sure that if there are any problems come up, you learn from them quickly enough to be able to not make them again and to be able to quickly scale up your operations as opposed to, yeah, um, having this massive, you know, having this massive problem on the top of your head and not being able to move quickly enough to, uh, to address, to address those problems. Great. Yeah. yeah, we're running out of time. There's lots of things to talk about regarding the product, the new product range. Also, when it comes to maybe um, the allergy issue, because soy can be an issue in other markets, maybe more than, than in, in, in your home market. So how do you address these these issues? Is this already probably solved with the introduction of lupin as one, as one ingredient or is it for the new product range a completely new setup? So our new products are still soy based. Um, you know, soy is uh, indeed you know, one of the 14 declared allergies here in the UK. It's nothing we hide from. In fact, like <laughs> we make it abundantly clear on our packaging that's made up using soybeans. Um, but for us, it's, you know, we're obviously always looking to make an allergen free product because it's in our mission statement, you know, trying to make uh, protein without compromise again for people. Um, but that said, like, Soy, pro soy protein or soybeans are one of the most nutritionally, like the, they are the most nutrition, nutritionally dense crop on the planet. You know, when it comes to calories, uh, per gram or even protein content per acre, they are the most land efficient, water efficient, uh, crop on the planet. So from an environmental standpoint, they're actually the best. I, I think, you know, soybeans do have 
um, generally a pretty bad rep because of, you know, obviously what's happening in the Amazon forest. And that's something that we have no connection to. I think our responsibility is to create a business model for these farmers to produce their crops sustainably and ethically, right? Um, such that they start moving away and transitioning away from their unsustainable sources of farming. Um, so all of our soybeans, for example, are, uh, you know, come from sources in Europe or in Canada, far away from uh, what's happening in the Amazon. But yeah, regardless of the allergies element, yeah, uh, you know, it, it is, we want to create, we want to meet the consumer's need for protein, right? And for taste. And at the moment, soybeans have the highest protein content of any legume that we've tried with, um, and they're able to meet, the con- and, and they taste amazing. They're the best tasting, in my perspective, in my, in, um, in my opinion. So, yeah, there's, there's always going to be some sort of, there's always going to be like a balance that needs to be struck. Uh, but for us, like soy at the moment, trumps. Yeah, it's great. And it has so many advantages and has got a you know, rather bad reputation. And I understand that this is part of your your mission as well to to reestablish soy in a way together with tempeh and fermentation and, and, and new and convenient products for different types of customers. Yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't say it's our core mission. Like we're not all about, you know, soy. <laughs> like that's never been, that's never been nature. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's a real shame in the same way as pop, that, that palm oil has a really bad rep. Um, I feel like it's largely misguided because yeah, I mean, palm and soybeans or well, palm when it comes to oil, soybeans when it comes to protein are the most, uh, land efficient sources of sources of, of the respective thing, protein or, or oil. So if you're looking to grow sunflower seeds instead and use sunflower oil, you're going to need 25 times as much land. If you're looking to, I don't know, like uh, instead of soy, looking for fava bean or whatever you, what, what have you for protein, you're going to need significantly more land. So it's, it's just, I think a lot of the bad rep comes from the, the whole GMO element of the argument, which is a whole nother can of worms. I mean, I study biochemistry, so like I know a lot about it and I know it's a lot of bull crap, right? That all these fears around GMO, but you know, it is what it is. And, um, yeah, with, with obviously the improper management of land in primarily Brazil when it comes to cultivating this crop, which is nothing to do with the soil, with the crop itself, but everything to do with the people cultivating that crop. Thanks, Chris. It was really, it was a pleasure to um, check in again and to have you also to hearing all these very transparent, I would say very frank um, insights, uh, takeaways, lessons that you have learned and that, that you are willing to share um, with other startup founders, with everyone interested, um, customers um, um, and also entrepreneurs. So, so great really a true um, good opportunity to meet one food innovator that has has been on an interesting journey since 2018 so thanks again thanks to everyone here at at uh, meet meet the food innovators and see you all very soon thank you yeah, no, thank you so much Abrax. it's always a pleasure and thank thanks. you everyone who's tuned in really appreciate it
Also, geht schon. <lacht> Now. 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 <lacht> oh, Jemini. Okay.